welcome to episode 385 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our friends, our family, our clients, really not even our pets. But joining me for the news roundup, it's a very good panel, Jordan Schneider, China tech analyst at the Rhodium Group and host of the excellent China Talk podcast uh, and newsletter, David Chris, founder of Culper Partners and former uh, high-ranking Justice Department official. Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting and former high-ranking DHS uh, official. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. we got a lot to cover. We're going to have to give a lick and a promise to some of this stuff. But Paul, uh, the Chinese are really squeezing Didi, which is their, basically China's Uber, a forced to force it to delist from the United States stock exchanges. And it looks to me, they're talking about cybersecurity problems. I guess the argument is that if they are listed on the U.S. stock exchange, they have to live up to stock exchange rules about the kind of data that they provide to investors. I think that's right. I mean, I love this story because this is, this reminds me of the of the guy who kills his his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court saying he's an orphan. For China to be mocking the data security problems of the United States, which, I mean, I don't want to disregard them that we have real problems, there are real privacy issues in the United States, but for China to suggest that it is holier than thou is sort of uh, uh, fanciful and a joke. I mean, what's happening here is that China is attempting to exercise greater control over all of its large-scale companies. This is of a piece with efforts relating to Weibo and Alibaba. Didi made the mistake of actually trying to enhance its independence by listing on the New York Stock Exchange, therefore opening up for itself a separate source of capital and thus a separate base of operations from which it could manage its activities without as much interference from the Chinese Communist Party. This is unacceptable, and data security fears are the assigned uh, reason for this. They might as well have said anti you know, violations of Chinese antitrust law or national security law. They could have picked anyone. They took data security, and they don't mean it, and we shouldn't believe it. Yeah, my impression is, though, the Didi actually heard from the uh, Chinese government before they listed I and the Chinese government said, don't do that. And Didi listed it anyway, probably under pressure from its venture capitalists and big U.S. shareholders. So they did an IPO at 14, and now they're selling at seven, thanks to the government of China's harassment. So I think even the in, the U.S. investors are being disciplined by by the Chinese government. Oh, that, that doesn't mean that the Chinese efforts won't be effective. I think quite quite to the contrary. You know, Klon Kitchen at AEI says every tech company is going to have to pick a flag. And he's right. And in the end, Didi is going to pick the Chinese flag because that's the locus of its major operations. But the choice is not one that they come to that readily, and they'd rather have the option to do both. Yeah. Uh I'll say like, I'll say one thing, you know, it's important to recognize, right? There are a whole lot of Chinese firms listed on American stock exchanges. And, you know, as, as Stuart mentioned, this one has probably gotten the most flack because, you know, it's it's been something that's uh, happened relatively recently. So the regulators may think it's relatively more straightforward to unwind, but, you know, you have uh, Chinese tech, you know, core national champion level Chinese tech firms in the form of, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, Weibo, Billy Billy, which like controls the minds of the youth of China, all of whom are listed on Western stock exchanges and have tons of Western money uh, running through them. So it's not going to necessarily be a particularly straightforward thing to put the cat back in the um, bag in, in terms of, you know, large Chinese tech firms lift, listing on uh, large established Chinese tech firms delisting from from the US but it's also fair to assume that you know future all sort of future capital offerings for these firms will happen in in, in Hong Kong or or Shanghai so I, I that that sounds right uh, and China is I think it's somewhere between a campaign of discipline and 
sort of open season for regulators who didn't get to do stuff, but now have been told, yeah, anything you want to do to the tech sector, you can do. Uh, the Tencent's messaging app has been, you know, throttled. To no updates, no new apps from Tencent. That's a big deal if you're in the business of trying to hang on to, to customers. And it was not clear to me what it was that Tencent did that got the government so upset. Sure. Just one last point on the last question. So it's interesting. It's a very juicy irony that tech Chinese tech firms circa 2019, 2020 were, were really scared that the Marco Rubios of the world would be forcing them to delist from the West. Little did they know that it was actually <laughs> going to be Beijing who was going to who was going to bring the hammer down. So back to your question, Stuart, on you know what's exactly happening with Tencent. This is a really dramatic move by the Chinese government. What the way that MIIT, who is in charge of, you know, broadly in charge of regulating internet companies, tries to do its work, and many Chinese regulators try to sort of get their message across, is they hold meetings and they invite, you know, 10 to 15 leading companies and they tell them, do this. You guys should all do this. Or they say, here's a bad practice. You 10 firms are doing it please stop. This has been something that's happening and been played out on a number of different sort of like more consumer protection-y type issues, you know, anti-monopoly type issues over the past, you know, four or five years or so. Tencent has, you know, very frequently been on these sort of like naughty lists, but without much penalty. Well, you know, if you are a, if you are a technology firm who has an app that lives on a billion people's phones and all of a sudden you're told that you can't send updates... Now that's going to get you that now that's really going to um going to wake you up and turn your entire firm towards um uh, towards tw towards addressing these issues. This is a serious escalation which I think which I think is really going to turn heads down in Shenzhen. So I it was not clear to me what the regulatory hook was. Just that they're sick of 10 cents thing. So so this was this was broken on CCTV. There's been a little bit of reporting on it. This is still an evolving story. So maybe check back next week, Stuart, for the uh, for the actual regulatory doc, which okay. will give us which will give us a little more color here. But suffice to say, I don't think this is going to be a sort of like two day fix it thing where Tencent's going to you know change some policy and all of a sudden have their uh, get the keys back to their back to their app again. Well, I, I always loved the, the episode maybe 10 years ago or more, maybe 20, where the Chinese government just took all the CEOs of all the big uh, phone operators and moved them from one one company to the next just to show they could and, and wake everybody up and say, yep, there, there is a sheriff in town and it ain't me. And so uh, uh, maybe that's what this is, just sending the signal, hey, we can do this. So uh, pay attention. Uh, they uh, also Just uh, here to... Uh, just a line for you from the uh, CCTV report. Nine Tencent apps have been found to violate regulations and have been publicly named and shamed four times um, without correctly rectifying themselves. So it's not just one thing that they're okay. screwing up, Stuart. All right. OK, so it's just it's a bad attitude. I, uh, so they also went back and said, by the way, all you tech companies, you've been buying up companies without uh, going through proper uh, merger and acquisition clearances going back 10, 15 years. And we're going to fine you for every single one of them. Uh, not a lot of money. You make it maybe a million dollars, half a million dollars or less, but enough to say, so that's one more rule that you have to follow. You can't just say, hey, I'm really big and I have friends in Beijing. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these interesting sort of U.S.-China convergences where, you know, we all know, I think, that Facebook could not ever, you know, get get a Snapchat acquisition through or, or a Twitter acquisition right. through in this current in this current climate. And, you know, even though these fines are relatively small, the message is being sent to these large, large tech firms that they can't keep buying up their competitors. And at the same time, we've seen another a, num a number of anti-monopoly activities forcing these uh, these platforms to open up and allow sort of more interoperability between the between the competing competing ecosystems. So whether that will just mean that these firms will be sort of sharp and innovative enough to clone and kill these uh, these upstarts instead of buying them is still an open question. But it, it is going to be a change, particularly, you know, speaking of Tencent, they are, you know, probably the most successful, have the most success successful M&A arm over the past, you know, 15 years in terms of what they've been able to turn their sort of investment portfolio into. And uh, not being able to do that is a real harm to, um, to, to their sort of operating strategy going forward. 
I, I think this is just these big companies are going to say, oh, I see how the game is played. New game, new rules. Uh, you have to have a, a, a friend in Beijing and we'll have friends in Beijing and all these little guys won't. And we'll find ways to screw them in the government as well as in the marketplace. This is not going to really prevent the uh, consolidation of the industry. It will mean that the tech sector in China is clearly subordinate to the government and has to curry favor in, in lots of different ways. Ransomware uh, is in the process of driving insurance costs through the roof. Uh, you can now get half the coverage for twice the price, <laughs> thanks to ransomware. Yeah. David, how bad is um, it? <laughs> it looks pretty bad. On Thanksgiving Day, in fact, Lloyd's of London publicized on the internet some model language provisions for its insurance uh, agreements and those used by uh, affiliates. And as I read the language you know, quickly, it looks pretty extreme. It would, notwithstanding any provision to the contrary in this insurance contract, we don't cover losses from war or a cyber operation. And a cyber operation is defined to be the use of a computer system by or on behalf of a state to do bad things to a computer system of or in another state. So if, wow. yeah, if you follow that language through and you take it seriously, and I think it's meant to be taken seriously, this is an exclusion for state-sponsored sub-law of armed conflict cyber operations that affect a computer in another state, which is basically all of them. So... And it would cover not just sort of stuff that's done directly by the GRU or PLA or something like that in Russia or China, but but even using, you know, in some cases, using proxy in the quasi-private sector, as it were. And the attribution would be, the contracts provide for attribution largely based on public statements by the victim state. So if the U.S. attributes something to a Chinese actor and, and makes some noises about state sponsorship, that would probably mean your insurance is no good. So that's pretty strict. Uh, and if that becomes the industry model, I think the insurance is going to be not very valuable. It would still cover, you know, criminal ransomware, but uh, to the extent there's state sponsorship, it looks pretty, pretty limiting. So I'm not sure that I, I can... I identify off the top of my head state sponsorship other than by the North Koreans uh, of ransomware. I guess there there have been dis things disguised as ransomware that uh, have come out of Russia. Maybe the Iranians have done similar stuff. Um, sure. But uh, uh, I think the Iranians uh, you know, have done Rebel the and people like that. And I mean, I do yeah. think, you know, it's hard for me to imagine you know, WannaCry and, and NotPetya and others being covered if this language were in effect. Maybe I'm overstating Fair it. Enough. But so no, I think you're, you're, you're right. I have a feeling different? that it, it would be the insurance company would at least resist. I mean, we'll have to see. And it depends right. a little bit on the language used by the victim states. Because again, these this model contract language great, creates a lot of deference to that, to the statements made by by the victim states. But, you know, I think there's definite, definitely, if you're the consumer of this insurance contract, you have to worry. And I, well, I do wonder whether we're not headed towards whether this isn't going to create a lot more pressure for government backstopping that helps expand these things as we did for terrorism, as we've talked about doing for pandemic related stuff. I mean, I just, you know, there's some discussion of it in the Solarium Commission's report and people have been bandying about the idea. But if the private sector is really going to go into full duck and cover mode or, or is going to come pretty hard over towards that, I don't, you know, maybe there needs to be some intervention to open it up. I'm not advocating for that, but it is a very interesting development how limiting these clauses are. Do you think that, do you think there's a, another possibility, sure. David, that given that the trigger is, is public attribution by the government, this will, this incentivize the government and we'll see less uh, of it as, as, you know, I mean, if I were the private sector, the first thing I would say to the Biden administration or any administration is, Go ahead, call it ransomware, but don't call it Chinese state-sponsored yeah. ransomware. 
Right. Because then I lose well, trillions of I mean, dollars. I think it's a question of whether the insurance company will be lobbying harder than the insureds. But second, I mean, I think the the you know the governments are going to want to make attributions for their own geopolitical and other reasons. And third, I have to say that again, looking at this model contract language, if the victim state takes too long, and that's more or less what it says, if it takes an unreasonable length of time, or if it does not, or declares that it's unable to attribute to another state, then the insurer can prove the action of another in the usual way with whatever evidence is available. So, I mean, I suspect that the states in victim countries will continue doing attribution for their own reasons, that any lobbying pressure from the commercial direction may be offset by equal and opposite lobbying. But in any event, if the states don't do it, the insurance companies themselves will end up hiring you know, private sector attribution firms to make findings and present evidence. And there's obviously a burgeoning industry for that. You know? Yeah, it sounds like they, because it, it really, if they're smart, They'll get those reports out first and then present governments yeah. with a fait accompli. Yeah. Uh, and so we could see a lot of dueling press releases about uh, individual it, it, attacks. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I had been contacted once to be an expert witness on an old fashioned law of war exclusion. And I'm sure maybe you guys have as well. And the question then mm -hmm. was, does this state sponsored cyber action rise to the level of armed conflict as traditionally understood? And the U.S. government's been pretty clear in a lot of its statements that this stuff, a lot of it, doesn't rise to that threshold. Doesn't mean it's a good thing, but it's not armed conflict. But here with this new language to include not just war, but also cyber operations, I think the insurance companies are responding to that by saying, doesn't matter if it's an actual war, if it's a state-sponsored cyber effort, you know, for or on behalf of a state, then it's going to be excluded. And the one thing I don't know is whether this Lloyd's model language is going to take hold throughout the entire you know, industry. I'm, I don't understand the insurance market well enough to know that for sure. But Lloyd's is obviously a major player in the space. And they've put this yeah, out. Gonna be they're, they're, a, they're a big leader. If, it, if they do it, yeah. They're first movers. Everybody will. So, and they've put it out on the internet on Thanksgiving Day, which to them, you know, they're British. It's not a holiday. Just another Thursday. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah. Anyway, so the, but to me at least, I mean, the language looks pretty restrictive. All right. Well, in annals of lawfare, now that the insurance companies are into it, uh, Apple as well is saying it may not be a violation of the laws of war, but it is a violation of our. Well, you know, our rights in some way that I frankly, you know, they've sued NSO group for making tools to attack iPhones for under the CFAA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, mainly. I And, you know, I'm still not sure I understand their theory, which is, I would say, laconic in the extreme. You know, Stuart, I'm glad you're as puzzled as I am. You know, uh, I, I mean... First off, Ben Powell did this. Yeah, he's a smart brilliant. guy. <laughs> he's a smart guy, former GC of ODNI. I am sure that he feels like he's got at least a leg up. I'm also actually pretty sure that they don't actually expect to get any money out of this ever from the NSO. So this is, to a large degree, or to at least some degree, part of Apple's legitimate campaign to establish that it will do everything possible to protect the privacy of its users, which is their public, you know, facing expression, notwithstanding their work in China. But like you, I'm not sure I see what their injury in fact is that satisfies, you know, traditional Article 3 standing. I, I mean, I guess yeah. they say that they are still owners of, operators of, managers of the software on my phone. But if you take it that way, you know, that I'm not sure I'd want to be an Apple customer who acknowledged that as a right and privilege of Apple in the first instance. Well, it would mean that everybody, every hacker violates Microsoft's right, and Microsoft could sue every ha hacker in the world. Yes. Uh, on the theory, well, we own the operating system still. So it is a it is a, a theory never before advanced seriously. Yeah. Uh, but who knows? You know, people hate NSO with a, a burning passion, and maybe they can make this stick at, at least enough to get a uh, an injunction. They do have some other arguments here. They say, well, they also the, the NSO uh, signed up for iCloud service. 
service and iCloud service has terms of service that require that you not hack other people, stuff like that. So maybe they're, they'll find a way to keep the case alive for a while, but the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is going to be a tough one to, to keep I, going. I also do think it's worth knowing this is really a follow-on to the WhatsApp suit. I mean, yes. and NSO's first throw of the dice is, you know, we are pro tanto a sovereign and you can't sue us. And that got rightly, I think, shot down in the Ninth Circuit earlier this year. So, uh, so NSO is an attractive target and it has no defenses, no jurisdictional defenses at this point. So it's going to have to answer the music and, you know, sit for depositions and and discovery if it gets past the 12B6, and that's going to cost them a lot. So I, th- there's two or three related developments here. Israel announced that it was going to reduce the number of countries that you could sell this kind of tool uh, to, to basically 37 Western-aligned OECD-type members. And at the same time, Apple announced that it was going to send notices to anybody that it believes was the the target of state-sponsored attacks on uh, Apple phones. And Facebook announced that it was going to go after, in some fashion, law enforcement agencies that logged onto Facebook with fake IDs in order to friend suspects and look at their quasi-public data. And what I think is the NSO suit and these other uh, developments combined with the fact that there are 37 countries that probably want to buy things like NSO, raises the question, I, how is Apple going to know whether it's blowing a legitimate law enforcement to attempt to infiltrate a terrorist group or a, a child porn ring? All they know is that it's a Western-sponsored attack on a phone. And are they really going to blow all of those legitimate investigations? Is Facebook really going to say, you can't, this data is public to anybody who's friended somebody, but you can't log on and look at it unless you do it as a law enforcement uh, officer, which will, of course, blow your operation. It seems to me that these guys are starting to assert their rights in ways that are really going to hurt law enforcement and counterterrorism operations without thinking much about the consequences. I think part of it is a reaction to the profligacy with which groups like NSO have acted in the past. It There's a difference between legitimate law enforcement and intelligence operations conducted by the 37 OECD countries to whom NSO's tools may now be sold and Operations conducted by yeah. pick your bad actor, insert the name. You know, I no need to call them out. They're listed. Uh, Citizens Lab in Canada has been doing great forensic work in showing how the the program has been, you know, rampantly used to go after journalists and political dissidents. It may get to be the place where one can settle on not non disclosure if. The tools are limited to Western nations. But, but how are you going to know? The, I, how, cat, how, yeah, I think the cat's out of the bag. And you know, so Google, Google uh, did it. Google did this right. They, when they saw somebody trying to break into a uh, a Gmail account, the first thing they did was to look to see if that uh, target was the subject of a lawful order, uh, intercept order, and then they did not disclose the fact that that person was being targeted. Uh, but, I, you know, Apple basically takes the view, well, there's no point in giving us a, a court order. We're not going to let you in anyway. So they are not in a position to make that kind of judgment the way uh, Google has done. So I, I think I, I think we're going to see more problems like this. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point law enforcement in some other country, I predict the UK, says, we're, we're just not going to tolerate that. We're going to pass a law that says you can't break open our investigative operations by uh, publicly disclosing them. And we'll see whether that works. All right. So the Israelis are making lots of news. The New York Times had an article about the broadening of the cyber war between Israel and Iran. And what I I thought was interesting is how 
each country has attacked what they think of as the weakest point in the civilian structure of the other country. The Israelis did a remarkable job breaking up Iran's subsidized gasoline business, and the Iranians doxed every every unattached gay and lesbian Israeli by going after their grinder equivalent and and doxing all of the the members. Uh, Paul, is there a broader lesson here? Well, I think there's a couple broader lessons. The first is, you know, that I think it's kind of remarkable that we transition from talking about U.S.-China to Israel-Iran. And I think that that's just the small-D democratization of cyber conflicts. You know, in three years, we're going to be talking about Uganda versus Rwanda, and it won't be terribly surprising. So that's lesson one. Um, Lesson two is that, you know, if the NSO story is about a, a story about trying to create new cyber norms and maybe making them more common and ra- ratcheting down on things like surveillance, the Israel-Iran story that you're telling us now, that we're talking about now, with mutual doxing of, of civilian structures and disruption of civilian economies, a story about the erosion of those norms, it would have been unusual five years ago for civilians to be caught in the cyber crossfire, except in the rare you know, edge right. case of like election disinformation. Now, you know, it is becoming a commonplace. And that too, I think, is going to be increasingly real. Yeah, you know, Martin Labicki used to say, what happens in cyber stays in cyber. And I think what we're going to see is that that's not going to be the rule anymore. And we're going to increasingly see uh, pervasive you know, sub-military, sub-armed conflict disruptions to societal structures in ways that, you know, I can't even begin to predict right now. I would never have thought of the, of outing, you know, that outing LGBTQ in Israel was a thing, but apparently it is. So there you go. Yeah, I, I, and I, I loved when the allegedly Israeli hackers took over highway signs to say, Khamenei, where's my gas? Yes. In order to, to turn it into a big political issue. But yeah, I, although I, I guess I'm struck by the fact that that's already a relationship in which people are being killed on a regular basis. Uh, and so it's not as though taking away subsidized gas is going to lead to an escalation in some respects. It's a broadening, but it's not exactly an escalation in a context where the, the Israelis have set up machine guns to, or sorry, sniper rifles to, to, to kill particular scientists. And I, I, I guess I'm going to respectfully disagree. We're not supposed to do that, I know, on no, the show, fine. Stuart. <laughs> But, you know, there is a real difference. You can between... disagree, just not respectfully, please, Paul. <laughs> okay, disrespectfully. <laughs> Thank you, no, David. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a real difference, I think, between targeting, you know, people who are quasi-parts of the military establishment, like the U.S. targeting of Soleimani and, and things like that, and broadening the lens so that you're actually creating adverse effects from for people who are, you know, I was, it was just really ordinary fun. I, you know, one, in the article, one of the Iranians said, yeah, just because our government's fighting, are, are fighting each other, why are they bothering me? And I thought that was pretty realistic assessment of what we thought the norm was. Yeah, and the Suleimani would never have said that. Fair, fair enough. Although, boy, that's a new standard since World War II. Uh, all right, let's yes. let's do one, our one and maybe only domestic story. The Senate is, and and, and the whole of Congress is trying to push forward this cyber incident reporting mandate. And the last, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, uh, the last hiccup in that process is the Justice Department, the FBI raised their hand and said, wait a minute, why are these reports about incidents going to the DHS? We're the, you know, the premier cyber organization. And certainly- <laughs> So out of character for the Bureau. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they never claimed to be the lead federal agency on anything. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, and they, I, it was so weird. There's no official administration statement, but some FBI guy uh, uh, who does cyber was testifying, he said, and the administration is worried that we're not included in this yeah, law. Yeah. I, I, I mean, do, do you, you think you, was... I like to make fun of the FBI a little bit, but of course I do have great affection for them. And they do have a, I mean, 
You'd like to have one-stop shopping for reports with a high confidence that those reports would be immediately and timely, you know, shared yeah. in all the right places, and there would be sort of one point of contact, and it would go from there. You know, but I think this is a little bit a reflection of a, on the one hand, a really strong desire for unity of effort in the cyber activities of the United States federal government, but a, a reflection that our structures just aren't quite there yet. Within the White House, we have not one, but two unity assurance <laughs> yes. persons, Ann Neuberger and Chris Inglis. Okay, so there's two for unity there. And there are three agencies, CISA, FBI, and ODNI, each of which operates fusion or task force or multi-agency elements that are in their respective spheres of influence or operation, one-stop shopping. And yes, you know, students of HSPD-5 can appreciate the difference between investigation on the one hand and remediation on the other hand and intelligence collection on the third hand. But the, you know, but the picture is challenging, I think. And the, you know, division of labor, while essential, is not exactly ideal for the nature of the cyber problem. And I think what you're seeing here is a little bit like Hey, we you know we want to get direct access from the private sector reporting entities for our you know investigative purposes, and so it's a reflection, I think, of the structural challenges and tensions that exist here. Right. Well, and then uh, don't you think that hopefully it'll get ironed out? Uh, it, it looks as though it it has. Eric Geller wrote a story at Politico Pro. I don't think it's broken anywhere else. Who said that the Senate made a change in the law? And they just kick it into the rulemaking process. Exactly. You know? It said, well, uh, you might, right. uh, DHS, please consult DOJ when you write the rules. Which, to, to be perfectly honest, I mean, that consultation requirement, quite apart from, in my mind at least, quite apart from whether it leads to an independent, simultaneous reporting obligation to the FBI, is actually eminently sensible. Yes. That is, the rules here ought to reflect consultation between DOJ, FBI, and CISA, and frankly, the intelligence community, not limited to NSA and ODNI. So, I, I mean, the consultation is an easy kick the can solution. It's probably where the details ought to be worked out. Maybe there's an internal MOU that can be established you know, between the agencies, and that'll take some of the pressure off the public-facing aspects of this, whatever. But to me, that that's eminently sensible and ought to have, frankly, been there, I think, from the so beginning. So you were at DHS with me when the we were at best the little brother of the FBI, and the FBI kept stuffing us into our junior high school locker and leaving us there. Do you think that this is... That still hurts, doesn't <laughs> there, uh, Stuart? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> I just remember it quite As well. As a DOJ guy, <laughs> I, I'll, just, uh, I'll just remain neutral on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 15 years ago, Stuart, it would have made perfect sense not to make DHS the center point for this. But at some point, you're either going to have to, you know, acknowledge that the structures you've set up are there for a purpose or give up the game and go back. It would be, I think, absurdly duplicative and nonsensical to have a mandatory dual reporting. I mean, why not tertiary? Right. You got to include DOD and, and ODNI quadrantally. You know, and they're all of interest. It's just a function thing, but it does reflect the fact that, you know, civilian infrastructure control is supposed to be in one place at this point. And CISA has gotten to a point where it can handle this, or more accurately, if it can't handle this, we should blow up DOJ, start over again, and, yeah, yeah because this is just notification. I, I agree with David that consultation is a great idea, but the I'm tired of the FBI. I love them very much, like David, but that's bullshit, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And actually, a after they ch made that change and they said, oh, please consult DOJ and we'll let Chris Inglis decide how to share, if necessary, the Peters aide, Peters is the Homeland Security chair, said, we think those changes fittingly address the FBI's concerns, which is the equivalent of, here's a nickel kid, stop bothering I hope you're me. Right. Okay, so maybe it'll pass now. Uh, all right, let's go back to China. Uh, it, this was an interesting story and kind of uh, chilling in its efficiency. Henan province has announced a procurement designed to surveil foreign students and journalists and uh, prostitutes from other countries uh, using all forms of data. Uh, they awarded that contract to Newsoft after 
two months and said, we, you have to give us this system in two months. Since they did it in September, it sounds as though Henan is already running a surveillance operation. Is that what you understood from this, Jordan? This was a weird article by Reuters. A few sort of like odd question marks that come up to me. First, like Hunan is not necessarily like the sexiest place for um, journalists to be scooping around for secrets. Like, honestly, they really do not have a lot of foreign journalists running around there. The number of foreign students also probably, you know, nowhere near in comparison to, you know, some of the provinces that have sort of larger and more famous universities that attract more, more foreign talent. That said, I mean, you know, you can find a lot of weird and crazy stuff looking at Chinese provincial and local government procurement offices. My broader take is that, A, this surveillance is already happening. You know, plenty of journalists. So this is just a tweak. This is the, They just want to tweak it to keep track of certain people a little more efficiently. Yeah, or it's some weird boondoggle. I mean, you already, if you're a foreigner, you already have to kind of like register every time you check into a uh, to, to a hotel or whatnot. Maybe this is just an update of that system. I don't think this is like a real escalation by any means. I mean, you know, I think everyone... Going to China, whether you know, whether they're a foreign journalist or a foreign student or a Chinese domestic national, should expect to be surveilled in one way in one way or another. I mean, this could potentially be just like Hunan wanting to check a box and uh, you know be able to report up saying like, look, we got this like cool innovative thing. The whole you know two month rollout also is a little suspicious. I mean, presumably there was some back dealing here. I can't imagine this <laughs> was the most transparent bidding process, but uh, but stay tuned. You know, maybe I'll do a reporting trip. There, uh, you know, once we get past Omicron and all, um, I'll right, come back yes. to Cyberlaw and let you guys know just how well I've been uh, spied on. Uh, yes, that's terrific. Well, uh, the U.S. response, I, not directly to that, but as part of the decoupling over these, has been to put a bunch of Chinese quantum computing companies on the entity list, which is really fast becoming a mechanism and maybe not an ideal mechanism, but a, a, a mechanism for the U.S. to try to starve. Chinese tech uh, sector companies of the resources they need to continue to make progress. So uh, the the U.S. move, I thought, was a reflection of, you know, the U.S. feeling the heat of competition from China's quantum computing initiatives, which have been lodging a lot of advances recently. Anything else to say about that, Jordan, or is this just uh, one more decoupling uh, uh, drop in the ocean? Uh, a pitch for, a pitch for my podcast. On China Talk a few weeks ago, I, I interviewed Lisa Porter, who is a senior uh, who spent some time in IARPA and in QTEL before finishing off her career in DoD acquisitions. I did an over, I did an overrated, underrated series with her about various emerging, quali- various emerging technologies impact on the uh, defense sector. I say quantum to her and her response is, oh, brother, and proceeds to go on a five minute rant about how this is a complete red herring. So uh, clearly not a red herring in terms of the, uh, you know, if you're sitting in the Commerce Department, there are enough people within government freaked out about this to want to kind of squeeze some of the uh, some of the upstarting quantum Chinese players as they try to, you know, hack, hack every crypto system known to man and, you know, build go past Moore's Law, I guess. But at the end of the day, I think you're seeing the U.S. government, you know, continuing from the Trump administration to be more and more comfortable just squeezing Chinese firms because they feel like it. And because, you know, yep. there is some sort of tangential case to be made that this would sort of harm the relative um, um, balance of not only military, but also technological power. And, you know, while you did in the most recent batch of ent- entity listings, see some firms hit for stuff like, you know, transferring technology to North, you know, military technology to North Korea and, uh, and Pakistan and, and Iran, the quantum ones in particular, they're not all about, exp- it, it, this isn't about sort of like, re- you know, reinforcing other sanctions export regimes around the world. This is about making, uh, you know, doing everything that the U.S. can to to sort of slow down certain parts of the Chinese ecosystem, which it which it, tech ecosystem, which it perceives as as a threat. Well, you know, we're still waiting on the Chips Act and you know our sort of R and D boosts to to hopefully make it past Congress. So hopefully DC doesn't necess- doesn't think that this is going to sort of solve all of their problems. Continuing to throw Chinese firms on entity lists. 
so I, I wasn't sure whether we were going to talk about this, but you bringing up the CHIPS Act does raise this question. China has been reacting to the CHIPS Act and the uh, Endless Frontier Act and all of this package of U.S. industrial policy aimed at competing with China, uh, the legislation, which frankly I read and it reads to me like you know, a law that people are passing just because they want to say they did something. It's mostly unfunded authorizations and, you know, we're going to, we're going to recruit and hire and to develop better talent kinds of things. Nothing very pointed. The Chinese reaction to that has been enormously hostile, threatening all kinds of, you know, frankly, stupid things from the Chinese point of view, like interruptions in supply chain that, that will only speed up decoupling. Uh, what's going on there, Jordan? You know, one of the big headlines to come out of the quad, the sort of quad efforts was this uh, new scholarship program to give a, PhD, a STEM PhD students from, from Japan, Australia, and India the opportunity to study in America. Um, if the students were good enough, they would be able to get fully funded PhDs on their own. Uh, and it's like something like 100 a year, maybe. If that's all we can come up with in terms of sort of tangible cooperation, where we have, you know, 15, you know, $50 billion in unauthorized, you know, unappropriate, authorized but unappropriated funding and sort of all of these talks, I I'm worried that all of this sort of effort we're going and, and sort of talking up the, talking up how we're investing in, 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 in resources at home and building sort of global tech alliances is really going to add up to not much. And it's, uh, you know, I'm all for parental leave and, and improving a funding of elder care and, and, and uh, you know, kindergartens and everything else that's in Biden's social spending bills. But it's really remarkable to me that the infrastructure package did not have more of this kind of like emerging technology, future China stuff. You know, all we really got was a handful of money for EV charging at the end of the day. So do you think that the Chinese are screaming about this as a, an act of misdirection? They say, oh, yeah, we, we'd love you to pass that law and then uh, dust your hands off and say, OK, we solved that problem. Uh, that's what we want. We want you to think that you've actually done something to compete with us by passing a law that has nothing we we're really worried about. Oh, oh, I, I know what you're referring to. Yeah, so, so, so the uh, the DC, the the Chinese embassy in in Washington, I believe, like one or two weeks ago, said that we, you know, strongly disapprove of your of your efforts to sort of like you know pass the pass the Chips Act, which I which is hysterical in that it will do exactly the opposite of what it is intending to do. You know, this bill has been sitting on the docket for the past six months now, and if there's anyone that can that can kind of get Congress um, to pay attention to this issue again, it's the Chinese government. Telling them not to do something. So I think for that communication in particular, uh, you know, there were some odd incentives where the the Beijing, you know, Beijing's embassy in, in DC couldn't really walk around and, and not say anything about this, even though of all the people in the sort of like in the system in China, they are the ones best who probably understand best that, you know, okay. saying saying don't do X is only more likely to make America want to do X. So this is sort of wolf warrior, self-inflicted wound diplomacy in which they say, what's the thing that we're most worried about in Washington? It's the CHIPS Act and all the related USIC legislation that's being yeah. pushed in the Senate. So we have an obligation to look good in Beijing by fighting this tooth and nail with threats and, and toughness. And so that's what they're doing. It won't help in the U.S., uh, and, but maybe it will make the ambassador to the United States look better in Beijing. Okay, uh, two or three quick ones and then we'll be done. Uh, uh, David, take us to the UK, which has a new, they haven't passed it, but it's a parliamentary system. They've proposed it and so we will see it. A new IoT security set of proposals. Yes, I shall be happy to take you to the United Kingdom. This is the Product Security and Telecom Infrastructure Bill uh, introduced the day before Thanksgiving. Again, not a British holiday. And it is an updated version of something that was floated, I think, in early 2020. It, it is, just as you say, sort of treating cyber vulnerability in connected device as a kind of consumer safety issue. So, you know, just as your refrigerator 
has to have certain requirements, has to meet certain requirements so it doesn't explode or overheat or have the compressor spew out poison gas or something. Uh, so too, under this legislation, there would be a requirement for some basic cybersecurity standards to be met to include, you know, not just issuing the, the same default admin and password credentials for an IoT device and being transparent about fixing software or firmware when vulnerabilities are are discovered and so forth. And it would put some teeth in these requirements. As I read it, up to 4% of global revenue is an available fine, 20,000 pounds a day. Uh, they're not you know, kidding around. You don't want to be on the receiving end of something like that with a regulator to be named later to enforce all of this. And, and, and you, can't escape the, you can't escape this by staying offshore and shipping your products in because they're going to apply, the, apply it to people who sell any anything in the UK. Yeah. This is very like like California's law which was passed about a year and a half ago uh, and had similar, you know, no default passwords standards and applied to yeah. everybody globally who sold in California. So it does feel like the UK said, "Hey, we can take this this California thing. The Americans oh. can't really object to it. We'll adopt it." I mean, look, I think there are a lot of complexities in the regulation of anything on the internet. You know, data demands, we've obviously had problems and issues with that. The Cloud Act's dealt with it. You've got must-carry obligations in some states and takedown requests for content in other states, and you've got cross-border cyber issues as well. I find myself fairly sympathetic to the broad issue here, which is that we do expect physical safety standards in consumer products. And I think we really have to start developing cyber safety standards in consumer product, you know, given the prior conversation about cyber insurance. I mean, I just, you know, it's really very basic to do these things. It's not that hard to avoid default passwords and credentials. And I, you know, so I find myself broadly sympathetic to this kind of regulation because appeals to enlighten self-interest and reliance on market forces doesn't seem to have done it. And the problem looks to me to be pretty severe and, I think, and not I that think hard. I think you could make the argument there's always been a tension between strict liability for products that are sold and no damn liability whatsoever for computers and then phones. And it was because computers were so cool and and we didn't have anything on it that mattered anyway. And then phones because they were just like computers because Steve Jobs said so. And <laughs> what we're seeing now is there's finally kind of a line between where does the products liability rule apply and where does the, oh, what the hell, it's just com- a computer rule apply. And... The UK and California have both said, once you get down to these devices that can affect yeah. the real world, don't give us that stuff about it's just code. It's it's going to have to meet some very strict standards as though you were well, selling, you know, exploding uh, soda bottles. I mean, a couple of things on that, I guess. I confess, I haven't read all of the language of the actual bill, but I have read the UK's own fairly extensive summary of it pretty carefully. They do purport to exempt items like computers that already have a regulatory framework. I think they also mentioned vehicles, which makes sense. And interestingly, it applies to both, as I read it, both local area network connected devices as well as wide area network, meaning internet connected devices. So they are they are really trying to come at it you know, both locally and globally, as it were, within a a home network, and then as the home network reaches out. But I don't read the obligations. I mean, they, on the one hand, want to describe them as very strict in the sense that they would powerfully increase the cybersecurity of everyone everywhere. On the other hand, they don't look that burdensome to me. Maybe I'm missing something. I'm with you. Uh, you No, I agree. This is the advantage of being in what you might call a target-rich environment for cybersecurity improvements. (laughs) It just, you know, like, I mean, you listen to the advice that cybersecurity experts give more generally, like, well, patch, you know, two-factor authentication and maybe get a password manager so you're not reusing the same password over and over again. I mean, these are... These are manageable mandates, I think, as far as I can see. I may be missing something, to be no, fair. No, I think here, you're, you're, you're like absolutely right. They basically wanted to draw the line saying it's different for IoT devices from yeah. computers, and we're going to set, start setting standards, but we're going to start with stuff that nobody could really object to. <laughs> right, right. All right. Uh, two or three stories to close it out. Facebook slash Meta has uh, been talking about end-to-end encrypted uh, messages for years, and they have announced, boy, you know, this turns out to be harder than we thought. Probably we'll have that for Facebook and Instagram in 2023. 
three, not even next year. Um, not completely a surprise that it's hard, but if you were following the E to E debate, you would have thought it was going to be next Monday. And now it looks like it'll be uh, a year from January at the earliest. And Clearview AI, which everybody, in particular on the left, but mostly in the press, loves to hate. It's a face recognition uh, company. Did remarkably well. Top 10 when NIST did a study of the accuracy of facial recognition uh, systems. Very, you know, pretty impressive for somebody that has such a bad reputation. And I will say I've been looking hard for a paper I'm trying to write on artificial intelligence and bias. And one of the most remarkable things is how little covered the improvements of the last two or three years in face recognition have been. All of the talk about race and gender bias comes from five years ago, six years ago, when the systems were okay, but not that good. Uh, they have gotten much, much better uh, since then. And Clearview's performance gives a reflection of how much better they are. Paul, you want to say something? Well, I, I just had an amuse-bouche, which is really, it, it, I think it's worth noting that 49 years ago today, Pong was introduced. All right. Yes. And, and for those of us who remember it, as I do fondly, yes, that is the true mark of the start of the computer era. Yes. Uh, and, you know, wow. not a bad yeah. game. Uh, uh, OK. No, so yep. so um, uh, uh, keeping on our esports amuse-bouche theme today, Paul, League of Legends star Ming Kai of EDG, who recently won Worlds and had Chinese kids dancing in the streets for joy, just joined the CCP. Uh, a beautiful irony in that, you know, we've seen over the past few weeks and have covered on this on the Cyberlob, the kind of crackdown of gaming among youth. So the, the sort of difficult tension here between on the one hand, China having a really crappy soccer team and not going to be not going to be in the running to win the World Cup anytime soon, it actually being really good at esports, but the government not quite being comfortable with uh, allowing that to be where sort of like youthful patriotism is channeled. I think um, some, some U.S. politicians have also made comments about masculinity and video games and various other habits. So there's yeah, apparently... yeah, but if they want people to love America, David, then they, they should really look up to our national Overwatch team to <laughs> to bring us into the future. I look forward to that debate. <laughs> <laughs> so is this just Shanghai saying, hey, we can get away with this. Beijing may not like this, but this guy will be good for us. You know what might happen, Stuart, is you end up turning esports into a sort of like Olympic style training program where you only allow, you know, the top 512 year olds who have fast reflexes work. I mean, the beautiful irony of this is that the only reason the Chinese are, are, are so good at esports is because they have a billion people playing these games and sort of talent is allowed to naturally drift up which is not how it works with other team sports take take soccer in particular where the fir where where chinese uh, chinese players in has have have struggled in comparison to their international I am looking forward to the uh, US National Commission on the Twitch gap between the United <laughs> States and uh, and China okay uh, uh, you know I just realized why did we have so many uh, international stories well david put his uh, finger on it. It's because the tech sector wasn't making a lot of news in the United States on Thanksgiving. So next Thanksgiving week, we'll just, we'll turn it into a, assuming we're still doing this, we'll turn it into a uh, feature instead of a bug. It'll be our international news week. Yeah. So thanks to Jordan Schneider. Thanks to David Chris. Thanks to Paul Rosenzweig. And uh, thanks to the audience. If you want to send us questions or comments, cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Give us a rating, write a review, we'll read it. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 385 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.